Hey helpers, this is Being the Work. I'm Ben Wire. And I'm Blakely Adams. And every week we're taking you along a journey into the kind of crazy existence of being a professional helper. Yes. And trying to actually be a human. I don't think we can say crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I got stuck. I got stuck on crazy. And lost my train of thought. This um, is a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> I, you know, Ben, I kind of hope this is the week where people are just dropping in to meet us for the first time because this is a, uh, this topic is challenging. Very challenging. We started out wanting to know, like, our personal experiences with imposter syndrome. Yeah. We shared some of our stories with each other about those feelings of, of not belonging, feeling like a fraud, of feeling like we're going to be that someone's going to find out and catch us being bad therapists, I guess. Yeah, like, you shouldn't be here. Go go away, get out. Right. But something about this topic slammed us into, I think, the, the sense that I had was, and I knew we were coming up on this. I know that imposter syndrome links, let me change that. I know that imposter phenomenon links pretty closely with some of the topics that we've led up to already. Burnout sure. can be a generalizable topic to anyone, any profession. Yeah. But there are nuances to our work, but there are nuances to the work that we do and what the burnout experience is. And I think that there's something very, very similar about feelings of being an imposter and being a mental health professional. And so I take umbrage with the term, with it being syndromized at all. Um, I have a lot of feelings, I have a lot of thoughts, and I have a lot of things that this seems to connect to. So the more that I researched this and read about it, the more I thought I just needed to go back and define these terms for myself. Right. What does imposter mean? What does syndrome mean? And then what does the term to me, imposter syndrome mean? Well, because there are connotations right there right away that get my back up a little bit. Yeah. I needed to know, like, what does it mean to me? Because it obviously points to all the assumptions that I'll make. Honestly, to me, it was just like, yeah, I don't, I don't feel like I'm super confident all the time in, in what I do. But then I started thinking, like, I always feel like being in a therapy session is always a pop quiz. Yep. It's always like, did you learn this? Did you read this? Do you know this? Figure it out. And I'm always reflecting on that stuff in the moment. So I came across this article, it's called The Pretend Professional from Counseling Today, <laughs> and it's by a therapist, uh, Jamie McNally, and she says, as counselors, we do not get the advantage of clear-cut problems, let alone clear-cut solutions. Oh, man. Human beings will always be complex, meaning that our jobs will always be difficult. And they're never done. Even when people leave us, it's not an end point. We have cliffhangers all over the place. Mm -hmm. And as humans, we like stories to be tied up in a little bow. We like to know that there's a conclusion. And Mm -hmm. we've signed ourselves up for a lot of mystery. Mm. And I think that that, 
if we don't have the environmental support in, and I mean, I do think it's both. We don't have the environmental support and the internal confidence and motivation or whatever that is to know that worth and put the pieces together, then that mystery can weigh us down. It can get really scary. Yeah. For me, this comes down, this comes down to the interaction between the individual person and their environment, the relationships in that environment, and the culture of that environment. Right. We have a shared philosophical underpinning that I don't know that we've talked very clearly about in right. the way that those pieces interconnect. Right. Each individual person has their own solar system of interactions going on. Yeah. Particularly, I see the biggest influencer, the foundational piece, is the culture that we live in. Mm. And that's very much a social constructionism idea of each individual is born into a system of understanding the world. And that's, we cannot get away from that. And without looking at that, we can't really know the full context of what meaning or truth is in a person's life. Exactly. That's the first thing. Second thing is obviously that each person has their own physiology and their own, therefore, body and brain, and their brain and body make up their mind. And so it becomes this, like, there is this mysterious part that we cannot say the brain is the mind. They're not the same. Thank you to Dan (laughs) Siegel, who helped me realize that, um, like, almost 10 years ago now. (laughs) In his book, The Mindful Therapist, great book. Go get it. Get it. Do it. Relationships we know are incredibly important in our lives. Environments and resources that we have in those environments are incredibly important in our lives. And the key thing that I think most people will know about is, what's the book? The Boy Called It. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Left in the Basement, yep. I believe. The humanness of that person was like choked out. Yeah. I have a thought on, I'm trying to think of how to say this in a way that's not insensitive and is entirely trauma-informed, but I am also thinking from an intersectional lens. I think that that book began, I mean, if we reflect back culturally, societally in the U.S., I think that opened up some of our initial conversations about trauma and cruelty and the way that it affects us as we grow and become adults. Um, I today find it very unfortunate that we needed a white man representative when there are a lot of marginalized groups that have been dealing with a whole lot of cruelty yeah, in a whole lot of ways for a very fucking long time. And it's, it's, it's just an example that we need a white man steward for fucking everything. Yeah, I don't want to discredit what that is, what that was the way that it pushed us forward. I just think it's worth mentioning. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. I agree. Mm -hmm. But it did, it opened up our conversation about trauma and its impact. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about the the body and the brain, I mean, it also pushes me into some of the new things that we're finally learning about how intergenerational trauma affects the brain and, and the mind. Sure. And even just our fucking genetics. Yeah. That it's much more, it's much more complicated than just saying 
you know, you're not confident in this area and there is a <laughs> internal block that you have to accepting success as an because you're an you're an imposter. God. And you just can't accept your success. Let's get back to these definitions cuz we're picking up we're picking up the threads of these these concepts and of our strong emotions about it. <laughs> Let me speak for myself. I am suppressing tons of rage. <laughs> As per usual. <laughs> but I'm going to try to keep it light uh, and no, fun to listen do to. That. Don't do that. <laughs> don't try to keep it light. We're going to get into like... Even when it's dark, I can make jokes. So fuck the light. Imp- do we want to get into imposter or do we want to get into syndrome first? Because it's worth noting that this was initially presented as imposter phenomenon. And I'm still much more comfortable with that term because I feel like I've experienced that. I don't feel like I've experienced a syndrome of imposterism. What, do, what is it that imposter phenomenon connotes that you're like, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm cool with that. The problem I have with syndrome, I can say, is in our general pathologizing anyway. We pathologize every individualisms. All the individualisms, all of the things that make me feel like I am not assimilating. Mm-hmm are a problem and pathological and need a medication and therapy to get rid of it. And I don't feel like that's entirely accurate. The, the phenomenon of this sense of, I'm a fraud, someone's going to find me, popping into my head, I can tell you the situations that those were in were when I was over my head. When I'm looking at the initial bio of a client I'm about to see and have no idea how I'll ever meet their needs. Or when I'm looking at my caseload overflowing mm-hmm. with kids placed out of home and in foster care and attending to all of their needs and feeling entirely overwhelmed. It's so much more for me and my experiences about feeling out of my depth and not supported. Right. And I think that phenomena kind of randomly rearing its head to say, well, clearly I'm the fucking problem, is a lot more palatable because it's a little bit more infrequent. And now that I'm a little bit further down the road, I know that that's a warning sign that I need something else. And I have the self-awareness to try to find it or to do what I did and quit my job. Yeah. Because <laughs> I have the privilege to do so. Thank God. Or thank, thank my wife. Honestly, <laughs> thank my wife. Thank my wife. Yeah. With this sense of of phenomenon, to me, shows more of an experience than it does, like, a specific problem. Yeah. Syndromes are more like, so Merriam-Webster's definition, a group of signs and symptoms that occur together and characterize a particular abnormality or condition. That, the abnormality of it. That's exactly it. Because what we, and this is what I'm saying is a little bit different about our profession in particular. I think if we never have the doubts, and we don't consider what they mean, and we don't consider that it's a self-created, self-responsible, self-manageable problem, that's not what that is. We have to look at the whole picture to manage our sense of feeling like an imposter. Right, right. Yeah, and and the, the word syndrome seems to double down on this message of it's your fault. Yeah. And this is abnormal, and this is your 
issue to deal with, go get help for it. Either more training, more supervision, more mentoring, or go to therapy. Mm -hmm. Or take your medications for depression because you're not confident enough. <laughs> that's where that's I take big issue with it. But we all live in this world. Like we're swimming in this water, right? Yeah. This is our environment. Like this is our culture of our society is to conceptualize, to generalize, and to, you, you know, show me, prove it to me that there's a problem where I, I, I should pay you to fix this problem. Yeah. It's right. that kind of thing that I also feel like gets imposed on the helping profession to prove itself valuable. Exactly. Like people who are asking that question, systems that are asking that question, won't take anecdotal evidence. Unfortunately, they also see qualitative research telling the story of a person's life and experience as somewhat anecdotal. Mm -hmm. Positivism in terms of, of an etiology and objective uh, objective realities like we're still in that thing like social constructionism isn't seen as a specific that valid thing Con constructivism postmodernism those schools of thought and sorry to bring it back to that like super in like talking about that intellectual ideology stuff but i think it's really important to kind of it see is. what are we buying into because if we don't look closer at what these things really mean and how they really affect us and how we just let these words slip into our vernacular as if they're okay, then we are still mm -hmm. participating in the systems that keep us in these positions that aren't okay. Yeah. A feeling like we're constantly yeah. the problem. And you know what? Sometimes it's the environment that's the problem. And I'm starting to think it's more often than not. Yeah. In preparation of, to this conversation, I took the imposter, or imposter phenomenon assessment. <laughs> I made it through four questions before I had so many questions that Ben told me to just stop wasting time. Just say it, Blakely. <laughs> this fucking pisses me <laughs> off. Like, <laughs> it does. It makes me really angry because anything that pushes on the individual and says, you are the problem here. When I can step back and see that we are operating and that as we push forward in time, every single fucking system, and maybe I'm late to the party in knowing this, I feel like every single fucking system that we operate in is not designed to work for us. It's working against us, not only as individual yeah. people trying to get by in the world, especially if you are not Sorry, a white man in a suit with a lot of money. Ben's not wearing a suit. He's wearing a hat. <laughs> and a t-shirt. And some shorts. Let's just be clear. <laughs> yeah. It's a typical Ben look, for sure. Um, if you don't fit the very tiny, narrow expectation of American human capitalist life, then fuck you. And that's most of us. Yeah. And we, as the stewards of happiness... <laughs> maybe need an avenue to happy <laughs> stewards of happiness holy cow like, like that's that's what that's everybody strong. seems to think we're selling i can't deny that 
the ruler that we use to measure what is a problem and what's not a problem is a problem. <laughs> like it is absolutely a problem. Therapists that I know that and other helpers that I know from nurses to social workers to like social workers that don't do therapy to therapists like me and you, we aren't always prepared for a clean cut problem. And definitely there's not a clean mm-hmm. cut solution, but that's the, that's the standard that we're right. measured against. Therefore, we're always scrambling to find a solution that we're, gonna, we're trying to do a complicated solution to a complicated problem and do it as fast as possible. And as cheap as possible. Well, because I think that in general, there's been a disservice done. We, uh, it's hard because everything twists in on itself. And I think that is sort of the meta study of what we're doing anyway. Say more. The more I do this, the more I want to be separate from these systems that we have had to smile and nod and just accept in order to hustle and legitimize ourselves. How are we never going to feel like imposters when at every turn, really, no matter what environment we work in, we're trying to legitimize our work to someone. And Mm -hmm. if you're an agency work, you're trying to legitimize yourself to the administration on the cheap as quickly and efficiently as possible. And even if you have clients who pay you, they're paying you for a service. And this is where it leads me to this idea that we're stewards of happiness. The more we participate in in those systems to prove ourselves, the more we are shrinking what we actually do and putting it into these data checkpoints. And it's just more complicated than that. Humans are more complicated than that. And we know that. And so we're selling ourselves short while also feeling like we're not selling ourselves enough. And that's not because I don't Mm -hmm. have the confidence in my work. I don't have confidence in operating within the systems that I am expected to, to do my work. Those are when I feel like an imposter. It's when my notes are late. It's when I'm being audited. It's when the, the managed care organization wants to talk to me about how long I've been seeing a very ill client. And I'm afraid that they're going to lose the support Mm -hmm. I give them. Why wouldn't we feel like we are not proving ourselves well enough when we are constantly proving ourselves? That gets fatiguing. How much power do we really have? If we're supposed to feel empowered beyond being a fraud, who says? Who says? It's a constant hustle of proving yourself. We never achieve the cap of it. And there's always the next person over who really has more power to say whether our opinion is legitimate or not. But we are also talking about not people's intentions. We're talking about the impact of a lot of things other than people's intentions. Like, well, I mean, that's a good thing to mention. I, I don't know if we're still in the semantics of it all, but we did some research trying to sort out the, the variances and the transition between imposter phenomenon and imposter syndrome. Right, because in the 70s, Dr. Clance, who came up with imposter phenomenon, and some, somewhere along the way it turned into syndrome. And... I don't, but I've seen in more recent research that has been used sort of synonymously or interchangeably, blessedly, the, the critical points that I've seen are pushing back on the fact that A, we don't have clear um, gender prevalence data, and yet this is 
very intensely pushed as a woman's issue. Yeah, and I don't know if that's still like the scientific representation or if that's like the generalization that the public has taken. I think it's been a little bit of both because those initial studies were so, um, were heavily female. Right. Um, and I think have been um, imbalanced in that really since then. So I found an article in, the ni- in 93. And it was saying, it was from Dr. Clance, and it actually said the, there's no difference among gender. But in that article, it said nothing else about any other, like, contextual thing. Like, the person's, all the person's intersections. Yeah. And intersectionality, I believe, that, that school of thought has been around since the 80s, too. And this was 93, so it's something to consider here. Of course. That the, the person's problem, more likely, it's going to be barriers in a person's way. Rather than there's something inside of you that is a problem. Kind of getting back to the two things of imposter and syndrome, like my personal story, I know that I have had times in my career where I felt more of like an an imposter or a fake. I understand that my training did not prepare me for every situation, and there's a lot of on-the-job learning. There was this kind of paradox of, I feel fake, but I know that to not feel fake, I have to be in situations where I'm learning. And oftentimes, that means that I have to challenge myself to be in situations that make me uncomfortable. So the solution to this like feeling fake thing is continuing to learn, in my experience, while obviously, of course, I, I need people around me to support me and I need the ability to not be punished if I make a mistake, like all of those things. You know, being a white guy, I, I understand my experience, although typically pushed by society as the like foundational ruler that everything else is measured against, like... I won't be punished nearly as much if I make a mistake. Like I will usually be given the benefit of the doubt and that's happened to me. 
where I've, I've made mistakes, stupid mistakes, honestly. Like, how did you miss that, Ben? And I still have been given the benefit of the doubt. My, my hierarchy of needs is really a lot less threatened because I'm, I'm white and I'm, I'm a man. Yeah. The, hmm. the experience of this, though, is... I still had to, like, I still felt as if I had to challenge myself to be in situations that I didn't feel I belonged in. And what, what, what issue I have with that now, I'm in a PhD program for counselor education and supervision. I want to, I want the world to have really great helpers. Mm -hmm. I think, I think we are essential to the health and well-being um, to our society and to our world. Like, Completely. And so... And some of us out here are not good. And, so, and we're not okay. Well, and that's the piece is like, are we not... Like, I know that there, are, there are, are going to be exceptions wherever we are. Like, some helpers may not be good helpers, but is it because they aren't good helpers or is it because they don't have the ability to be honest about what's going on in their lives. Like we have within the helping profession, we have a mental health stigma. We yep. cannot be sick and we cannot have a problem. Whether or not it's caused by our environment or not, we can't have a problem because we're the ones that were, are expected to be okay. Like it's still this whole like gaslighting self-help kind of expectation yep. it's your problem go fix it it's nobody else's problem but yours and that's this like fake professionalism that i'm like i don't understand this aren't we all in the same boat aren't we so. all like going through very similar things but that's the thing when we're when our resources are tapped and we are scraping the bottom of the barrel and competing with one another for resources we're not going to be on each other's side. This is going to be Lord of the Flies out here. Well, and I've said it before, like we are positioned to hold each other's hand. I can hold your hand through the scary stuff, but I'm not going to look you in the face. <laughs> right? Like as therapists, we do not look each other in the eye very often. Ooh. We, do, we do consultation. We do supervision where we talk about how best to treat our clients. Mm -hmm. We don't do much community where we talk about how to, be us yeah. and how to understand each other. Yeah. We are also victims to the expectations that society has that we are perfect and Zen and centered and our relationships are perfect and our experiences are perfect. And we know all the answers to everything to make ourselves continually and perpetually happy mm -hmm. and peaceful and perfect and to teach the same to you. And none of that is reality. Yeah. At least not for me. I don't know. Ben seems pretty Zen sometimes. Well, seems is a really key word. Just because I have a calm tone of voice. <laughs> I think you've perfected the Zen voice. Yeah. <laughs> don't know that I ever had to perfect it. You were born with it. You didn't even have to. Never trained. It was, <laughs> it just is. So. <laughs> Some of us come to the Zen a little more. Uh, maybe, it's, I don't know. Some of us come at the, the, that sense of peace a little bit more easily than others, maybe. But I don't come with a sense of peace. I, I do always feel like I don't belong with my peers because in a lot of ways I don't. 
Not that like generalized societal idea of us, but I still wear a lot of cardigans. I mean, it just reminds me of when you were saying we don't look, we don't look each other in the face. Like it hit me like number one in our offices, we're all next to each other. You know, we're not with each other. Two, the the communal rooms that we actually get to commune in or actually be together in and have community are like, they're not, I don't know, in my experience, they've never been comfortable. (laughs) Harsh fluorescent lighting, (laughs) hard, hard (laughs) tile floors, uncomfortable plastic chairs. Do you remember when I just went without lights because I wouldn't let them put fluorescence in my office? Yeah. Yes. I just didn't have a light anymore. Because I said no. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh God, I forgot. Yeah. I <laughs> I brought in I brought in lamps. <laughs> they took out my fire hazard wall sconce. You gave me a lamp. Yeah, I, I gave it to you when I quit. I used it. I still use it in my house. I mean, it takes me <clears> back <throat> to learning about existentialism and although he doesn't call himself an existentialist himself. Most of most existentialists don't. Um, Martin Buber talks about the I thou relationship. Mm-hmm. Like it is incredibly important for us to know each other and to see each other for who we really are. And how often, I mean, that's really kind of the big umbrella that goes over this is whether I treat you like a person or I treat you like an object. Mm. And if you don't fit into my definition of what should be, then I'm going to tell you that you have, I'm going to pathologize that understandable, normal thing. You don't fit into this group, then, okay, well, you've got a pathology. This, you have a syndrome. Yeah, right, yeah. And I don't, I'm not necessarily like blaming white people or blaming men or anything like this. Cause I mean, <laughs> I'm doing enough of that for both. We, well, I mean, that's the piece here too, is let's just take a look at what is. So that we even have the ability to consider what could be. Exactly. Like we have to admit what we're dealing with right now. If we're ever going to break down the walls yeah, of what we could do. Exactly. I think that there are bad therapists out here. I also think as a general rule, these are superhero humans who have decided to sign on for the kind of work that right, we do. Right. And the systems that we operate underneath crush us and crush our creativity and crush our innovation and crush our ability to actually make mm-hmm. humanity better. Right. Right. The helpers that I know and have come into contact with, the ones that are my friends, and the ones that I've worked with. Not all of them my friends. A lot of them my acquaintances. They all signed up to dive into human problems and honor people. We want people to live better lives. We want them to live without so much pain. Because of this societal viewpoint because it's not a concrete thing that people can hold or people can easily see we don't get credit for what we do we're not valued 
in, in society as much as we should be. My emotional labor is not nearly as equal as my physical labor. My physical labor is very little. Mm-hmm. My, f- my emotional labor is incredibly taxing. And I don't know, like that's something that's just not seen and experienced by most people. And so. Well, and I don't know, I don't know if it's experienced by most people because I think that emotional and mental labor are illegitimized a lot of the time. Absolutely. Especially emotional labor. Yeah. Emotional labor is women's labor and therefore is already smaller and more insignificant. Right. Emotional labor would have to acknowledge our mental health stigma if we were going to acknowledge that emotional labor is laborious in an equitable way. Yeah. I just remember the ethics training we went to (laughs) and how, I don't even remember the topic, I don't even remember, but yeah, we learned that I have a penis and that I'm a woman. And you learned that you don't have a penis and you're a man. Yeah, and that that's all that makes up gender. Right. <clears throat> I wasn't going to get started on gender construct today, Ben. Oh, well. You brought it up. But we were. We were taught how. Yeah, like, I mean, how, I mean, that my whole life, like, I, I have wanted to fit the standard and haven't. Like I can easily blend into the standard, but I don't blend. I I don't like. I don't fit the standard naturally. Like I've never been super competitive. I've never been macho. I've always wanted to learn and listen. Um, well, you've always been sensitive. It sounds like like emotion. I mean, you have high emoting experiences. <laughs> yeah, I. I Observe, I watch, I listen, I feel. I am a classic Enneagram number nine. For sure. Like, well, and that's why, I mean, I think that's why I've taken to so many of those like personality theory ways to understand ourselves because I have definitely always got, I'm cisgender female and, and I'm a queer person. And so the ideas about gender expression and gendered personality expectations, right. I also come from very small redneck corner of the world where the expectations for gender are very tight. Yeah. And I never fit those for sure. And so, I mean, it's just an example of the constructs that we are tasked to push back on that feel like our responsibility while also not being able to acknowledge that we are experiencing them while we're trying to cope with them while we're trying to teach other people about them while we're trying to teach other people to cope with them. Yeah. We are socialized to look at ourselves as the problem. It's easier. The standard is the standard. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps, go figure it out, become the standard. Well, that's also easier because that's how I can tell myself that I'm invincible to whatever your fucking problem is. It's because of something quote unquote wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My MO is usually fly under the radar. Try to, as much as possible, fly under the radar and do the work that I find valuable. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to bring m- a lot less attention to myself because I'm not, I'm not really interested in justifying myself to you. And so 
that it's not often that people know that I'm a therapist who don't really know me. Yeah. Like I was saying to myself, as I was, as I was taking this imposter phenomenon assessment is it depends. It depends for 20 questions. It depends. But my score (laughs) is, I can't remember the categories, but basically if we score it on one to four, four is the most impairing. Yeah. One is the least impairing. I'm a three. Okay. I'm a three. So like whatever's described in that. (sighs) Yes. I scored those questions high, mostly. While also, there's so many things where I was saying it depends that it's like, okay. Yep. Yeah. And that's part of what got me stuck and not even able to do it. But the other thing that was bothering me about it is, as we're talking about this, I'm also running it through um, the article from Harvard Business Review that I think a lot of people are familiar with right right now. Mm -hmm. Because thank God, it's been so incredibly popular. Which is Stop Telling Women. That they have imposter syndrome. Yeah. Ruchika Tulshin and uh, Jodi Ann Burry. Jodi Ann Burry. They wrote that. And then they also wrote a follow-up, which unfortunately hasn't been as popular, but uh, needs to be, which is really a guide on how we break down this concept of imposter syndrome in the workplace. And they're talking about the workplace in general. And that's what we grabbed and took to really look at. What about the environments for our profession in particular? And, you know, I've listened to them talk about these concepts and they also brought to my mind the, the um, pet to threat phenomena that women of color often experience, mm. which I have observed and can say as a queer advocate, I believe I've experienced in very intensely heteronormative agencies um, where the questions on this assessment are saying things like, If someone gives me a lot of praise for work I've done, I'm afraid I won't live up to their expectations in the future. I think that's almost verbatim one of the questions. And what I can say from my experiences of trying to push archaic systems a little bit forward is, yes, that stuff seems exciting. They want to be a gender-inclusive and expansive provider. That sounds good on grants. It doesn't feel good to them as we start to actually change how we operate. It doesn't feel good to do the change part. I've been in charge of a committee that suddenly disappeared overnight because the needs assessment that we had proposed was something that we weren't just told no, everyone pretended it never happened. And when I am, when George Floyd was murdered and there was traction where we were to talk more about systemic racism, I sat in a Zoom meeting where the person in charge of social media says, we only have X number of Facebook followers, so it doesn't really matter what we say publicly. And that is, that experience contributed more than anything having to do with my severely and persistently mentally ill 20-year-old 60-count caseload. That one statement from that one man Changed my career course more than anything else. It's not the work that burned me out. It's the expectations and it's this bullshit of refusing to break down the stuff that is actually making it harder for us and for the people that we have said that we're here to take care of and help and support. So yes, I'm a social worker. 
And sometimes that's not enough progress for me. Knowing that you sat in that meeting and thinking of the people I care about, just, it takes me back to the, what are our values? My value is to bring respect, dignity, honor to people who don't usually get to feel it or don't usually get told that they deserve it. That they even deserve to be heard. My, my whole career has been to serve mentally ill people. And, and I, I drank the Kool-Aid and believed that there are mentally ill people and not mentally ill people. And not that there's this huge spectrum <laughs> of mentally ill versus not mentally ill. It's not that. <laughs> no, mental wellness isn't a, more than just a spectrum. Didn't we just say earlier it's a fucking solar system, man? There's a whole lot going on here. We are galaxies. And that's the wisdom that I can take away from all of the growth through the adolescence of my career. I had some big growing pains to come to this moment in my career and do this work differently. And this work is growing pains. It takes me back to my values and what are our values? What should they be? Because honestly, in, at our last job, <laughs> I ignorantly believed that we all had similar values. And I, we don't. And damn it, that's probably one of my experiences with imposter phenomena, is realizing that the people around me aren't always mo- motivated by the same stuff yeah. I am. The advocate in me and this constant, I mean, we've already covered what brought us here and what sustains mm-hmm. us here. I am always nosy and curious, and I am always wondering what could mm-hmm. be. You bring me this, let's find out yeah. what we can do with it. Yeah. That's how I approach my clients. Tell me about you, and we will figure out what can be on the other side. Mm-hmm. And for you, I mean, you said that's a sense of faith. How does that apply to this? Well, I, damn it, that's a good question. I, I guess it's faith in that, it's faith in that people have, I believe people have a tendency to grow toward health and healing. Our immune system works for us. Well, sure. There's a reason we have neuroplasticity. Yeah. Like, and I believe that that is, is also in our minds. Like, we don't want to be ill, but we obviously need help at times, right? Like, I can't just expect my body to heal itself all the time. My immune system isn't immune to everything. There's a lot of external environmental things that happen to me. I suppose it's the belief in the collective as well. Like there's this sense of like, if I'm with an individual in a therapy session, most of the time I can find something that we connect over, that I can empathize with, that I can understand. Like why they are experiencing the things that they're experiencing and the things that they are experiencing. And 
like I also believe that like with people who value the same things, like if we come together and say and profess the things that we value and live those, that life can be better. That I don't have to pick a fight with you to advocate for the people I care about. I don't have to pick a fight. I understand that fights will happen, but this is a dialectic. Certainly. It's not simple. We have to find the synthesis. It's conflictual. Well, and it's interesting. The pieces like, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I'm still trying to find the words, adequate words that will find how faith fits into this. I mean, I have a, I have a thought on it as you're talking yeah, about it. Please. Because it's making me think of how, how our perspectives and what we would identify as different values actually also overlap. I know I just bitched about it, people not sharing my values, but I think that we can find commonality even in different values or even how we label them. Because I think what we're sharing here is the belief that growth is worth it and growth is painful. Absolutely. Yeah. And my sense of curiosity in my strength finder, my number one is ideation. I tend to have a what could we do mindset because I believe that more than on that individual level as a whole, I'm not sure about the planet, but the rest of the shit, I think we go through what we need to go through to get where we need to get. And we as a society are in a pretty intense season of mm. push and change. Mm-hmm. And it's overdue. Yeah. And we, as professionals and as a profession, can be part of that too. And I think that we have to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the value that we do share is in humanity, I hope. Yeah. Yeah. And that we're worthy. That's the point of this whole podcast is bring back the humanity for the people who choose to honor yeah. humanity. Because we will be better at honoring humanity yeah. if we're better at honoring ourselves and each other. And I think that's why this topic is just incredibly difficult. I haven't brought this up yet, but I think it is just influential to all of this is I never really studied Freud a whole lot. I was never really into psychoanalysis and Freud and like, I respect the things that he figured out, but there was part of this trauma book that I was reading for class. And the title of the chapter is uh, forgotten history. And that book (laughs) is called Trauma and Recovery by Judith Herman. Basically, what they call hysteria back in, you know, the 1800s, he found that it was sexual abuse. (laughs) And he even wrote a paper on it and took it back. Like, he went in a completely different direction. (laughs) And instead of pathologizing the environment and the behavior of others, particularly men in power, He pathologized the woman, (laughs) blamed it on her uterus. You mean we could have had the body keeps the score, I don't know, about 200 years ago? What would be different? 
That's absolutely true. Can I 112263 retroactively find that one out? I'm going to step through a portal and ask Freud a lot of questions. Uterus causes lots of problems, but usually it's what's put in there that is causing the problem, not it's just general existence. Leave her alone. She's just doing her job. Well, and I mean, it's a great reminder that even Freud is foundational. Right. We have to re-examine and consider what our foundations are about. Because, I mean, unfortunately, he was onto some stuff. And unfortunately, I feel like he took the track of them in a bad way. That didn't bring it all back in a lot. But we have to actually examine things if we're going to change them. Yeah. And this is why this is like one of several conversations around imposter syndrome is that it gets us into so many different places and so many different dovetails. But there's an issue here with dialectic. We do need to be able to see different parts of different problems. Like mm. we don't have to completely take everything that Freud says and throw it in the garbage. <laughs> as much as I have the impulse to. Well, and, and I mean, consider why you have the impulse to. Right. In context, it's because why should we listen to someone who has been shown as like the father of psychiatry and who also oppressed a whole generation of women and every generation after? Like, it's it's no wonder. It's no wonder. And I have been in this profession for almost a decade and just learn this. I mean, I was like, holy cow. But I mean, that's, again, how can we not sometimes feel like imposters with the, the burden of knowledge that we could pursue? When we've taken on human beings as our career study, you can't mentally download what is humanity. We just can't. Because we don't know. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Like, where's the thumb drive? I'm just going to plug it into my brain. Oh, God, that would be so much easier. We didn't pick this shit because it's easy. What's my, what's my line when this stuff's too hard? I should have been a librarian. <laughs> Don't tell the librarians. <laughs> what would you say to folks that have, have made it this far in our conversation today and, <laughs> like, that have... Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for hanging in here because I had a rant. I just needed to get out. <laughs> I mean, I love the journey that we've taken on this conversation. And I'm just curious what you think people who have listened, what you think they could do or should do, what you would recommend them do to kind of interrogate this for themselves. And um, I mean, selfishly, I want to know, I want to know what people are doing. Um, I want to be able to honor that and shout that out because every little bit matters. And I. The equity, the inclusion, and the humanity of all people is important. And we know that as therapists, we are intimately connected to that. So. And it starts inside us. It starts with that self-understanding. And the, the amazing thing is that that takes time and energy but it doesn't take the same time and energy as not doing it. 
Which, I, as I'm <laughs> saying this out loud, I realize that this is, I mean, I mean I'm exactly saying, let's not treat social justice and advocacy with the same, like, paradigm that we would our careers like we i like i when when i was new in my career i was like my clinical license my independent license is the only thing that matters right now and and i would just like clawed my way to that as fast as possible and there's a lot of things that i could have learned along the way that like taking care of myself and valuing myself as a human being and not just as a therapist, you know, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So let's not treat this in the same paradigm as the, you know, seeking a career and, and the capitalist like treadmill kind of thing. Let's just settle into understanding ourselves and finding something that is really something we can get behind and criticize yourself, like interrogate. Don't be scared of that. No. Yeah, because you're not so scary. <laughs> <laughs> well, and really, if we're if we're talking about doing the work, and we're trying to grow into being mm. the work, this is part of that inside-out process. Absolutely. Warts and all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because this isn't a binary either. There's a whole spectrum of, of wokeness and experience and social justice orientation. Wherever you're at is fine. Mm-hmm. Accept and change. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> right. We're all working to be better. So if you have... Uh, if you'd like to share with us, we'd love to hear your stories. We'd love to connect with you over this. Reach out to us. Email us at uh, beingthework at gmail.com. Of course, you can find us on Instagram at beingthework. Slide into our DMs as the kids say these days. <laughs> hey Not like that, Such though. an old dude here. Yikes. 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 Let's cut that out. I think that's um, I think that's a bit. Oh, that's sexual. No dick pics. <sighs> oh, that's what that means. I mean, sliding into your DMs is like. Hey, you want to hook up? Hey, you're cute. Yeah, let's cut that out. Uh, I mean, I think it's funny. <laughs> <laughs>